This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. All right. Wow. 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 Yeah, you're about to tune in to me and Parangi dropping deep in the valley of Oak Creek in Sedona, Arizona, fresh off Tribe Design 13. We had a special immersion night for people going through our facilitator training, and I broke my own normal again and um, did a. I've done every podcast live, but. This one was live with an audience and super special. Made some super special announcements. And by the time I'm recording this intro, I'm not technically really allowed or supposed to speak about publicly the offering that we have for our tribe design in Patagonia. But what I can go ahead and say is to hurry up and apply for internationaltribedesign.com for number 14, which is also known as the 5th New Year's Evolution Fest for uh, on Patagonia, Argentina, on the largest lake, from my understanding, in Argentina, for a retreat center that's been in the family of one of our facilitator trainees for 47 years, and they're letting it go, and will be the last event to celebrate their stewardship of this property right in the lake that can house a tribe, and it's epic. And actually, one of them, <laughs> I was just telling someone this. Our friend Jesse, Jesse, let me know if I'm misquoting this, but he was on our Colorado event, and he loves Colorado mountains. He's like a real mountaineer and truly adores the power, that those, the energy that mountains can hold and that can be moved. And he went to this retreat center after our, when he found out about our friend Kenya, and um, he went down there. And he said it made Colorado look embarrassing. And I was like, you of all people, you're like Mr. Colorado. And you said that. All right, let's go. Let's go while we have this unique golden opportunity taking advantage of it. So if you feel the call to join us, go ahead and apply right now ASAP, actually. We have a very special, like, eagle, (laughs) early eagle offering. That's that's breaking normal for early bird, um, obviously. And... Yeah, I'm excited for this one. Fifth New Year's Evolution Fest. Tribe Design is roaring. It's roaring for more. And I don't need to talk about it much now. Kind of tune into the frequency of the group interaction here on this interview. And once again, internationaltribedesign.com to uh, make that application. And I'll also include a outro of the... Um, Basically of a teaser of the Breaking Normal book on Audible that you can check out that I think will be relevant to what Parangi and I dove deep into. This is a big deal. This is conversation. I mean, between somehow bridging the gap between like a Sundance ritual versus circumcision and how both can be traumatic and enlightening and the subtleties of a tool versus a weapon. This is a conversation definitely felt tribal. And I trust you'll feel the same, and I'd love to know what you thought through a comment or a review on the Instagram on Apple, because that's kind of like paying reverence to the gods of the internet known as algorithms, and it's fine, it's fine. You know, as we talk about in this podcast, 
there's a subtlety in the power of being able to play with this fire you know this technology this at our fingertips if you're listening to this you have wow the fire the fire you have at your fingertips is profound and to steward it wisely and i trust this podcast will illuminate on some ways to make that easier and with more grace job less see in patagonia potentially put that application in asap and someone awesome most likely named zach will be in contact very soon much love y'all well i pray for the uh, best synergy possible yeah and the best connection possible on my i'm coming out of a weekend where connections seem to be such a strong important theme that people actualized during the experience yeah and that's what i'm praying for and Oh. Yeah, I already feel it by being in Parangi's presence here on the rooftop in Sedona. And he has uh, something in his hands that I, I feel like something's about to be channeled. <laughs> it's already done. It's already done. All right, so I don't know how this is going to sound with being this close, so we're going to see kind of. Oh, yeah, feel free to get funky with it. Adjust that however is best. Let's see if this will That'll be a little better sound. It's a little far from the mic. This mic wants to be like right up on it. So maybe does someone want to? We don't have another mic, do we? This is what we got right here. Okay. Many so mics, but what are you thinking? Maybe we can figure it out. Yeah, let me try to improvise here or something. Let's see. And we can, um, it doesn't even have to be for the mic as much as it can be for me and That's you. That's true. That's true. And we have a video that could be shared as well. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe there's a way though. Well, That was what I was thinking, but then I can't hear if I'm, uh, yeah, if I'm too hot or too. So, mm. I'll just I'll just play it like this. It'll just be in the distant and in post. You guys can add some reverb and maybe boost it in the game. Beleza. Go 
Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. Good life. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> Bless these waters. Mm-hmm. Okay, for you that are a little bit more out of context, as the tribe is w- that's with us on this rooftop paradise in Sedona, Arizona, with Parangi, um, we're basically up here to get to know each other. I'm coming fresh off Tribe Design 13 in Sedona, Arizona. This started Friday the 13th on the full moon, and man, we <laughs> we went on a journey. And from what I understand, you probably are just coming back from a journey as well. Indeed. So I would love to know a little context of what <laughs> journey you're just coming back from so we can kind of see if we can harmonize these tunes, which you seem to be a master at. Thank you for your blessing there right before this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I just got off the plane here um, not even 48 hours ago or so from Lisbon, Lisboa, Portugal. And, uh, yeah, we'd been on the road for about three weeks through Europe. There, the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal, and Spain, and just uh, playing music, offering our music at several ecstatic gatherings, ecstatic dance gatherings, and um, yeah, getting a chance to really drop in with the old world, which is always an incredible thing. You know, for me, um, being originally from Brazil, uh, I grew up with a lot of things that I just took for granted the way the sidewalks were, the architecture, certain things that we would say. And so, going back to Portugal and being in kind of the colonial motherland if you will is always an eye-opening experience it really opens up my awareness and i see oh that's where that comes from that's why we do that you know that's why the sidewalks have those crazy tile work you know mosaic patterns that i remember from my childhood and i just thought oh that's a cool brazilian thing things like that and then mannerisms and ways of being and you know you think and it gets me into the reflective place of you know thinking about how much of the world we know today is has been formed because of the colonial powers and all of the not so great things that they did, that pretty rough history. And, you know, for better or for worse, here we are. And so it's always interesting for me to reflect back on that, you know, and just kind of see my place in that and all of us, you know, and kind of the culture that we live in now, I would say globalized neo-colonialism or consumer culture or call it what you may, the Western culture, allopathic world of healing and kind of alluding to the, you know, our both of our background in medicine. So it's just, um, for me, just kind of coming back, it's always like, wow, America is such an interesting place because it's such a a mixture, an intersection of all those things and all of the really rough, uh, horrific things and and also really beautiful things and a lot of courage and a lot of beauty and a lot of, you know, willingness to sacrifice comfort so that we could have a lot of the liberties that we have today that may not have been possible without the, you know, the actual existence of, uh, of the colonies and kind of how that all unfolded in the empires so yeah it's it's kind of an interesting place for me to kind of come back and land and then come back to the red rocks and be greeted by this beautiful land and just yeah invited to just open up my heart and and bear it so i get to do that with you today so thank you for that it's a drop of water just blessed me up (laughs) wow wow Uh, yeah literally and metaphorically it's starting to rain right now potentially (laughs) which is not yeah wow big blessing what came up for me was I was thinking about how something – I have this idea that, you know, if the devil is in the details, mm-hmm. maybe by addressing the details we can give it wings and it can become an angel. Oh. And you spoke about some big topics of, like, atrocities that happen and then coming – like, the, the after effect, the beautiful glow after the trauma, the collective trauma. And I, w- I thought about my grandparents that, from my understanding, survived the Holocaust by living under a graveyard. Oh, yeah. And – 
yeah, sometimes, especially at these retreat experiences, with maybe eye gazing in particular, I sometimes uh, feel like I'm connecting to my grandfather, mm. who I may have only met for one year of my life, uh, but something beyond that, something beyond that, or even physical meeting that one time. And yeah, I was curious if you would address one of the things that maybe a specific thing that has happened in humanity when you mention colonialism or whatever, or any of those specific details, and then how that may have affected your specific lineage? Sure. Where to begin? Um, so my background is quite mixed, and so that's why it's kind of tricky, because there's a lot of narratives in there that that weave together to kind of make up who I am, and I feel like inform where I come from and, and what I'm about and how I'm wrapped. Um, on my mother's side, that's Brazilian, uh, indigenous African slave mixture, you know, Portuguese, um, Tupi-Guarani, Indian from from the south of Brazil, from the Atlantic rainforest there. And yeah, and on my dad's side, um, Choctaw, Totonaca Indian, uh, Scotch-Irish, and uh, you know, my, my dad was born in Mexico, but um, from mixed parents, his father was uh, fr from Oklahoma, Scotch-Irish and Choctaw, and my grandmother on that side, was uh, Totonaca descent and, and a mixture also of Lebanese and, and French. Um, so to <laughs> Breaking normal breed. Yeah, it's pretty big mix-up. So, so I've always been very confused, <laughs> to put it mildly. But all of that, I mean, I think one of the biggest pieces for me now and kind of what my life has been unfolding is um, I've, you know, I, I practice a, a spiritual tradition, I guess, for lack of a word, because there's no real word for it. We call it the Red Road. And, and what that comes out of is, is teachings that are related to Lakota teachings, that are related to Diné, Navajo teachings, that are related to a lot of different indigenous wisdom that comes along the way. And my mother, when I first came here to the States, um, when I was young, about the age of 12 until about 18, she was adopted by a family. She studied Navajo and was a bilingual teacher and learned Navajo was one of the languages, though she spoke Portuguese, English, and Spanish as well. Um, and so in that, she was adopted and, and became a sun dancer and a pipe carrier. And in that way, I spent those time with her up on the res and also learned a lot of those ways as a young man. And um, yeah, and now more recently, I've been finally feeling called to, to actually step up in a bigger way, bigger commitment to that spiritual lineage and to start to carry the chanupa and to sun dance myself. So that's been a big part. And so I guess when I speak to the colonialism, that's one of the big ones that really strikes me really deeply because I've been spending a lot of time in the summers and uh, different points of the year with my relatives up there, you know, on the on the reservation, specifically on the Navajo reservation, and really connecting to just the trauma that's so obvious. The moment you drive past Flagstaff and you just go a couple more hours, you suddenly think you're in the third world, for lack of a better word, but, you know, we we kind of use that to kind of describe a very impoverished, very stricken with a lot of difficult, you know, situations of living. And it's insane because, in fact, the Navajo Nation in the Four Corners in that area of, of in the Hopi Nation, the Hopi Mesas, and that whole area is so rich in so many resources. In fact, there's the most water, there's the most power that could come out of there, there's the most uh, nutrients in that soil. It's, it's actually very wealthy land. It's mineral rich, and unfortunately, none of that wealth stays on the res. It's all being extracted by government, by Peabody coal mining, 
by several major corporations that have had their hands in there and they've intimidated and manipulated the tribes and a lot of the people there to sign off rights to their water which you see in the big in the dam you see all that water being used for creating you know a slurry with the coal to be able to transport the coal contaminating the water for the uranium strip mining that's happening for the weapons programs in the United States so there's all these levels to it that you see still to this day never mind the last 300 years of you know genocide um, so all of that, you know, to say that when I go back to the res and I spend time with my relatives there and, and we sit in ceremony, I know it's kind of, it's heavy, weighs heavy on the heart, you know, and I drive by, you know, to go to the arbor where we do the sacred, to so the Sundance ceremony, you know, we drive by the chief's house and his house is, it's a bunch of shacks and it's like, it's just literally like boarded together trying to like have a house, you know, and yet he opens his house and his heart into about 400 people who come from all four directions, from various nations, various cultural backgrounds to come and pray. And so it just speaks to me just to the depth of a people who have nothing and yet they still give everything. And I think that's really one of the pieces I feel, um, I guess for me is that, that resilience, that beauty. And that's kind of really what the Red Road's about. It's about walking in beauty and the beauty way we call it you know, Hojoni in Navajo, which is this notion of how do we how do we move in a beautiful way? How do we bring beauty into the world? How do we make sure that everywhere we move in the world, we leave it more beautiful than we find it? And if we all do that, it changes the whole game. Yeah, I, I imagine that if I found out more perspectives that your path, the path that you're on, I would share them as well intuitively, like what you just said there, leave a place more beautiful than it, when I came. And it's uh, super affirming to me with, you know, here we are. I'm riding this wave known as tribe design, this mm. spirit of tribe design, and, and in a way playing a chief role in it. And this is pretty surreal for me to share this in front of this group that we just practice the art of tribe design literally in the midst of it. And here you are showing up, talking about your passion and connecting with that and being a part of that and sharing that. And, yeah, I, I – um, from someone that has just fresh ears, I would love to know about any other kind of perspectives that path um, that you're on is about. Because I know very little about it, but I'm very interested, actually. And I would also love for anyone that's, um, we're going to do something breaking normal here and have a full tribe tribe design experience. If anyone wants to ask a question or pitch in, just let me know, raise your hand, and I'll see if we can pepper them in there and see what kind of tribal council we can have. And I just want to say thanks again for being here. It seems really yeah. affirming for what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. So so just so I'm clear, so you just asking me to kind of elaborate a little bit. Yeah, more any other th uh, perspectives that you think that maybe the matrix, if you will, or the modern culture may have forgotten that your path is reminding you of that you would love for other people to be reminded of? Yeah. Um you know, one of the biggest things that I, I constantly struggle with being an, uh, a musician, an artist, you know, in the 21st century and an activist and really looking at how do I use art as a means to activate people and to activate myself and to create a positive impact in a world that in a lot of ways, when you sit and you read articles and you do research and you really look into what's happening on the planet from a climate perspective, when you look at the planet from a political perspective, when you look at it from a place of socioeconomic, what's happening in those ways and how wealth and resources are being distributed and misdistributed, we might say, in the world, um, it's, it's heavy. 
and kind of like the, the prospect or what the conclusion from a lot of the scientists, so to speak, now, right now, is like, we've missed our window. It's too late. It's kind of like, just buckle down and kind of expect the worst. It, it reminds me very much of the way medical doctors say, you've got six months to live. And it reminds me kind of the way in which we've seen, and I've seen this from personal experience, where if the person chooses, the patient chooses to believe that and swallow that spell, you might call it, you know, or that agreement and, and swallow that down, they're going to die in six months, maybe sooner. Because immediately there's this giving in to this prognosis, this, this you know, diagnosis or whatever we want to call it. And I feel like th it's a very similar parallel, I could almost say, in a way to what we see happening right now, saying that, oh, it's over with. We've already missed the window. There's nothing we can do. So let's just keep being ridiculous and just keep extracting all these resources and keep burning all these fossil fuels and forget about renewable energy. And it's not even an issue. Basically, let's keep doing what we're already doing, which, you know, and watching all these ex other species pass on, you know, as a result of our, of our comfort, our comfortable lives. And so I feel like we're at this interesting crossroads where we're being invited to, to kind of drink that Kool-Aid and say, okay, that's just it, and roll over, and let's just, you know, let's just go out with a party and a big bang, or m can we still actually really do something and really be way showers and and fire keepers? And I use this word fire keepers, and it's a it's a term that I really has come to really resonate in my heart and the work that I'm doing is helping people remember our responsibility and our birthright as human beings, as two leggeds as Homo sapiens, as the intelligent sapiens, right? The Homo sapiens is this, we have this ability of all species on the planet, we were given the gift of fire. Of all the elements, it's the one element that we've actually been gifted the power and the responsibility to harness, to work with, to disrespect, to and to respect. And when it's harnessed in a good way, we warm our household, we warm our bodies, we create, we transmute things, we illuminate things. We can bring a lot of beauty, in fact, with that fire. All our civilization has come out of fire. When we don't honor it, when we disrespect it, when we're out of balance with fire, we know what happens, right? Things are destroyed, things are burned and incinerated. And in fact, we see that happening in a very real way and also in a very metaphorical way. I feel technology is essentially fire. It's just an evolution of fire. All of those light boxes, all of those phones in our pockets, they all put off heat just like a fire does. We kind of forget it because it's got the wires and it's got all this other stuff that's going on there that we kind of forget the relationship to fire. But it's actually fire when we go back to where it's originating. And so again, what's our relationship with that fire? Are we in good relation or is it out of balance? Are we just in the screen all the time? Are we being absorbed and consumed by it and burned up by it, depleted by it? Or are we able to have right relation with it? So I feel it's, it's one of the core messages in my work and in my music is helping people to really recognize that and then examine it and see how they can be in right relation. How can they change that in their own personal relationship as well as with their family and with their community. And so I feel like that in a lot of ways is kind of parallel to, yeah, the core of everything that's happening right now. So for me, that's that's one of the big ones, if I could share. <laughs> oh, yeah, so relevant. For even just recent conversations I had, I was someone was talking, oh, I was asking someone, do you think, what, if a doctor diagnoses someone with something, do you think the diagnosis is more dangerous or what they're actually, if the, what they're being diagnosed with is actually true? Which one do you think is more dangerous? Right. So I think it's, uh, that was a question I was recently 
kind of surveying someone else for because I've what you said definitely resonated and to find out that you were in a pre-med background at yeah. one time <laughs> so we both shifted from like the traditional medicine route to I would say uh, a more aligned medicine route and yeah. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I've been I've been <laughs> listening too. to your music a lot recently, especially when I found out there was a chance for us to collide here, and it served me really well in uh, my breath work. And it's a music that seems to kind of harmonize with nature rather mm -hmm. than drown it out or distract me from it. It's like, oh wow, this is like another element of nature harmonizing into, m and it's technology used in a good way. And I can yeah. so the same question I've asked to myself so many times: What's the difference between a tool and a weapon? And I guess it's like it's the person that is whose hand it is and w what's their intention and what they're doing with it. And I love the uh, realization that, yeah, that phone is a, the element of fire. What we're doing right now, we're playing with the element of fire right now. Exactly. And so it can be used in a really beautiful way, like the way we're capturing this conversation hopefully will resonate with other people, will listen to it, will open them up and help them to see another perspective of the universe. So that's one way, I think, in a good relationship with the fire. But by the same token, you know, obviously there's the shadow side to that. So that's the invitation. And it's a, I think it's a moment-by-moment moment process, you know. It's literally tending the fire. Like that fire is burning there. You're going to go ignore it and go do something else and not pay attention to it. It's got a life of its own. And so it's just like that. It's like the AI. You know, I, I look at, you know, artificial intelligence right now, what's happening, the whole discussion around that. It's huge. And a lot of us are just kind of acting like, I don't want to look at it. Maybe it'll just like take care of itself over there <laughs> you know and it's very much like that fire you know in the middle of your teepee you don't leave that thing right there unless you don't value your home you know there's a good chance it's going to burn it all down if you don't tend it and so right now we're being invited in a big way is how do we go and take care of that that interesting fire of artificial intelligence and our technology how do we how do we really hold accountable you know our our relatives over there in silicon valley as well as those people who are in government, you know, and obviously there's the whole military industrial complex. So all of these are things that are very real. They're not going away. They're there and they're very much alive, active fires burning and raging and they're being fed. And right now, like we know our leadership at present is feeding extra, is throwing extra logs onto that fire right now, or I should say coal um, in a very rapid way. And so I think it's really inviting us. How can we, open the dialogue how can we raise question how can we really rise up because i feel i'm watching and i see it even within myself I, it's so easy and it's insidious because our culture is so set up our consumer culture to just leave us very comfortable and very complacent it really thrives on us staying chill distracted if we're not thinking about those things and everything's kind of pretty much working out then there's no it's kind of like it's very easy to just unplug i just want to watch a movie i want to go into vr i want to do whatever the thing is and to just kind of be distracted by those things that are very hard to face and so I, I guess that's where i feel my work as an artist and i struggle with this as i said in the beginning because it's like for me it's like how can i make a difference as a musician how can music how can how can i make an impact and so it's something that i'm constantly asking myself and you know my team it's like how do we bring music and the activation of people and their musical voice and open their expression because i feel very much what happens is in consumer culture it's very much about passivity and having people not be expressed it's rather instead of you learning how to make your own music it's very much about how about you just buy music and keep buying music and there's an endless infinite amount of streaming music at any moment you can just turn it on and you totally lose the the true sacred reverence and appreciation and wonder 
at that thing that is so ancient and primordial to us, right next to fire, in fact. Because the way our ancestors only a few generations back would experience music is you would have to go and you'd have to go call grandpa and grandma and the uncle and who's got the guitar and who's got the drum and we'd all go sit by that fire and we'd all jam. And that's how you'd have music. That was it, you know? That was the only entertainment happening. <laughs> so if you want to get down and, and make music and connect to spirit or music for any kind of ceremony, that was how you did it. You couldn't just like, oh, just let me turn on my, my little thing right here and hit play and go and there's a playlist streaming, you know? And so we've kind of lost that connection and that reverence. And so one of the things that I like to do in my work beyond just performing is teaching people and taking people through these retreat experiences um, as well as workshop experiences throughout the places that we travel that really help them to connect to their voice, connect to their authentic expression, and to feel that in community, in a circle, kind of like how we are here a little bit. And in that, help them to awaken that and feel as authors once again and feel as the source and to really inhabit their breath and their body with presence and to really in, in, in that process it just by its nature we run into all the judgment and all the self-criticism and all those traumas that have been left in our body from our childhood and from our upbringings and from our cultural traumas that we were talking about earlier so it's a big part of the work i think is opening up that portal and doing it in a beautiful fun way which music is and at the same time super powerful and super deep if you give it the chance it's almost as if you were describing my experience that I just went through in a way. Awesome. <laughs> so I, I think we're super aligned in a way. And that's what it felt like. It's funny because you're probably the person I know maybe the least almost before doing a podcast. But in a way, I felt like I knew you more Beautiful. because of that. Because we haven't distracted <laughs> each other with conversations yet. But I can just feel there's an alignment with what you're doing. And I know you have a retreat coming up here in Sedona. We just got yeah. done with one. Yeah. And for tribe design, that is a major. We have like four modalities that we've really focused on. Uh, music, mystery, mimetics, and movement. So we've held space for this mysterious music for almost half the time. Mm -hmm. And things things that were, were expressed that would have never been with words, um, just with speaking. And you asked the question, how do we stand up to this? Uh, I definitely want to, I've been, one of my major projects is working on a Breaking Normal app, which is, in my opinion, helping break the trance of social media. Mm. I think a lot of people are scrolling their lives away. And I'm typically, I would, I may err on the side of like, I see what I'm looking for. But I actually believe there is a huge issue with what's going on with social media. And along with, I, like, I haven't even thought that deep about the music part of it. And I'm happy you reminded me of that because that's what, like Kenny, Kenny is here to hold down the musical vibe. Like we've, that's his function and we've awesome. addressed that because that's a big <laughs> deal. And we don't need to just press play. There's other ways to create music. Yeah. And this uh, is just super, once again, super affirming to be sitting here with you saying it in your way and me being like, wow, that's a new angle of thinking about that. And I'm stoked that we're on the same team on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Does anyone have any other questions? In oh, Kenny, my man. <laughs> To, re uh, to reverberate what I heard Kenny say, which is trippy because now I'm interpreting the question, which is just thickens the plot, clickens the thought. But basically, <laughs> the uh, intent you have been involved in Sundance rituals or experiences and the intensity of that, Ceremony, and yeah. you want to know more about that? Is that 
most powerful, memorable experiences from that that I could share? Well, that's a big question, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, without getting into, that's a whole other podcast, I think. But um, without getting into the kind of the details of that ceremony. Um, but I guess simply put, one of the, what I can speak to this year, what's very up for me and alive for me right now, was um, that ceremony is very much a young ceremony. It's very, ma- it's very, I don't want to say male, but it, it's like young in the sense of energetically speaking. It's very strong. It's a lot of, it has a lot to do with sacrifice. It has a lot to do with suffering. Um, you put your body through an extreme, extreme conditions, um, all in prayer. All is a prayer. The whole thing is an offering. And so you literally become the offering to the sun. So the dancers, the male dancers, we, you know, we wear a skirt and that's it. And we dance, you know, four days, no food, no water, um, sunrise to sunset in the peak of summer in the desert. And, you know, in that process, we go through this, this kind of walking through the fire, you know, truly like you're giving yourself to the sun. And what I saw this year, one of the deeper insights, each time I do this ceremony, I get more and more insight. And this year specifically, there was a there was a moment which was very memorable where we're all out there and the round was really long. It was like a three, four hour round. And because um, they were doing healings and lots of other things happened during the ceremony because we're kind of holding space as other things happen um, in the arbor. And in that that moment, there was this kind of in this peak of the day. And I saw and I looked around at all the dancers, maybe 70, 100 dancers. Um, and all of them, we were all kind of falling. I could feel our energy just really dropping. And kind of what spirit showed me in that moment was how that kind of ceremony when it's so fiery and it's so much heat and it's so much young that it was actually i got this insight that it was actually about the invitation of us softening and becoming the water and becoming the yin and that was the only way through it it was like another level of appreciation of why we do the ceremony to prepare ourselves for the medicine path which is why is one of the many reasons why we we do that um it's not just the rites of passage it's also it's various things but it, it prepares us to be able to carry the chanupa and to be medicine people um, and to be basically leaders for our, our communities. Um, and so that's a big responsibility. Like we don't drink alcohol. There's various vows that we make to be to be a sun dancer and, and to be able to carry that pipe and to share that pipe. It's, a, it's an honor that we do it. And we do that so that when people need healing and when people need to be call on us, we're able to respond to that. Um, and so, it, for instance, one of the ceremonies that we do as a sun dancer is to pour lodge, sweat lodge, inipi ceremony, um, purification lodge. And that's one that a lot of people don't totally understand. A lot of people have done sweats. A lot of people will pour, some people we call it rainbow sweat, you know, where they kind of just, they feel called to pour the water and, you know, call it what they will. But it's not a traditional sweat. Um, it's not in that line because in that way, it's a requirement that you sun dance. And some people might be, well, that's very old school. It seems very traditional and formal. And it's kind of one of those things. It's much like medical school, for lack of an, you know, another analogy to that, you know, in the allopathic model. But there's something about when you go through, or let's say you want to be a curandero and you want to work with plant medicines. You need to go and do dieta, not for like a weekend workshop as a shaman. 
which a lot of people are doing these days and thinking they're, they're qualified to pour lodge and pour, pour for, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies, for instance. But really understanding that there's a reason why you have to go through years and years of training and preparation. There's a reason why. That's not just a formality or kind of an old fuddy-duddy thing. And I think that's something that's misunderstood by a lot of folks. Um, and it's important to emphasize because like the ceremony showed me, I needed to be the water in that moment. And it gave me this embodied visceral experience of what it is to be water, what it is to be the feminine and to really embody the feminine in a way that I'd never done before. And the moment I surrendered my, oh, I'm going to power through this. I got to, uh, you know, I got to just hold it together. And the moment I surrendered that, it was like all this energy came back. Immediately, my whole dance came back and I was able to stay in my dance and my prayer. Exactly. Uh, that was perfect. So enough said. <laughs> For those not, uh, not here, that was a beautiful hummingbird that just came through to let us know that was truth. So yeah, that's a, and that's a constant reminder because it's very easy as a man to get back in my righteous indignation, you know, as a male, <laughs> to be a ding dong, you know. Um, so it's a constant invitation, you know, of how to soften my edges and how to be the feminine, how to honor that. Because as a medicine person, whether you're man or woman, you're working in those unseen realms. And, and just like a, some, a doctor who's been through those, all those years of training, not just medical school, but then the residencies and all the other stuff and the specialization, when you go work with that brain surgeon, you really hope that they've done their homework and they actually paid attention in class when they have a scalpel and you're in that surgery room. And so it's very much like that when someone's pouring ceremony, me plant medicine, or whether we're pouring water on stones, which is still very powerful medicine, just using the elements, you want to know that they're able to deal with, not when everything goes well, because that's easy. It's what happens when shit hits the fan, when things aren't good, right? And excuse my language, but when things are really difficult, you know, and things come up, which inevitably does, how do you handle that situation? And that really is, is the true test of a medicine person. And, and I think it extends, of course, to everyone, because we're all medicine people. We're all stewarding our own life. We're all pouring water in our own life. And so how do we do that when we're in a relationship with, you know, our beloved and things come up? And how do we, when we get triggered and those triggers come up and we want to rage and we want to turn into a total monster, how do we step back and have the calm to really step through that in a good way and be able to catch ourselves before we do something that we really regret? And so it applies, I think, on all levels. And so I, I guess, um, yeah, Sundance has been a powerful teacher for that and helping me to learn how to walk in a, in a more beautiful way. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like some real um, emotional intelligence is going to be the outcome of that experience. And I trust no one will need any brain surgery or scalpels to understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to say that my I was talking with our friend Mary Catherine before this. I, sh I don't think she's up here right now. She's still around, though. That literally, if I was going to study like my path of miracles, there's something about when I went all in on an idea, all in, and then regardless of the results i surrender and then it's like at that point of surrender mm -hmm. something something it's kind of like uh when i saw my daughter get born deanna was going and going and going and going and she ga she actually gave up but that's when davina's head was coming out and i'm like well wow. good timing, <laughs> <Give> <laughs> good up. timing. and there's some there's wow. a pattern there that i can't ignore so i'm happy mm -hmm. to hear you express that in your way as well i mean i saw cole raise a hand up pretty quick was that right
you're you're asking about Sundance when we when we do the, the flesh offering. During the dance, over the course of the four days, there's a piercing round every day. Every day, but not you don't you pierce once as a dancer, an individual dancer. But there's piercings happening, yeah, every day, and eagle dancers will pierce and stay pierced for four days. So that's the most intense of the of the prayers. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's a part of it. Um, it's one that kind of gets sensationalized. I feel, so I don't, I, you know, it's a very important part of it. But it it kind of gets misunderstood, and so that's often the one where people are like, who don't understand those ways, are kind of like, oh, that's very barbaric, or you know, they have lots of things come up. So I I try not to stress that because I feel it's 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 small in the greater context of what that ceremony is about, but it is an important piece. Um, that off that specific piece comes out of a teaching I learned from from an elder. Um, that I didn't fully understand because my mother had done it. Women dance, and that's a more recent phenomenon. My understanding is that historically, it was only the men would sun dance. There's other ceremonies that women would do, but that was historically a man's dance. And it was because that piercing, that offering, and that whole process I just talked about of kind of putting us through this, like, I don't know how to say it, this, uh, the eye of the needle, if you will, kind of so that we emerge more connected to the feminine the piercing offering specifically and the flesh offering rather um, comes out of a teaching i was explained that is actually to honor the pain that women endure to give birth to give life and so the men would pierce we pierce and we go through that pain and that suffering and that offering that then is cut the flesh that is broken from the from after your dance when you break that flesh is offered into the tree and there's a, a central tree in the arbor that is our connection. It's like the antenna to spirit. Um, and so we actually offer that into the earth. And that offering, that connection to the tree and to the feminine is is that way of being able to honor, you know, obviously it's nowhere near the pain that women endure, but it's like that symbolically helping us to connect to that. And that's that whole process really is for us to be able to soften ourselves, to become more attuned and more appreciative and humbled to the feminine, to the women, to our mothers who you know went through so much to push our heads through, to push our whole beings through, you know, and then it's not over, obviously there. Then all the pain and suffering of raising those kiddos, right? And going through all of it. So, I mean, it's it's a major undertaking and it's always the mamas who hold it down because dads, you know, hopefully they're around, but we know many who have checked out, you know, and have not honored their responsibilities as fathers. And so the feminine, again, holding it down. So that ceremony would prepare us for that. And, and historically also, People would Sundance as warriors b to go into battle, because as we go through that, it takes us through. The veil gets very thin. I mean, you you're very close to death in that process, and with no food, no water for that long, and, and in that active way, you know, and, and sweating through the throughout the ceremony. So there's a there's a part of that that is preparing us so that we can face our fear, and we really see what we're capable of. Because a lot of times. Our fears come out of a place that we don't really understand how incredibly powerful we are. A lot of that, a lot of our fear, I believe, and that's been my experience. You know, when I come out of Sundance and and you know walking, you know, out into the world, and yeah, it's like when I'm hungry, when I'm starting, I'm like in an airport, we're on the road, we're touring, you know, and you're just like, I haven't eaten any good food for so long. You're like, I'm just, you know, I'm okay. I'm just gonna eat that whatever is available. Um, and then I remember, I'm like, what am I talking about? I'm fine. 
I'm not going to die. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like we, we get so dramatic, right? And we get all hangry and we get all intense. And it's like that reminder to like, you're fine. You know, it's all going to be okay. And so it's really powerful when you've been through those fires in your life, whatever it is. And I mean, Sundance is one very specific road. I, I'm not at all saying, hey, everyone, go be a Sundancer at all. Um, there's many ways that we can go through those fires for ourselves and go through those initiations and those those roads. As you know, you know, it sounds like you guys have just been through one together. I, I feel it's really important, though, to do that because those experiences prepare us for the uncertainty of life prepares us for the struggle for the challenges that lie ahead and there are many and when we haven't done that and we've only grown up in and we've only been given those little rites of passages like getting our driver's license or when we're old enough to drink alcohol you know or graduating our high school diploma like those are our rites of passage in america right it's a mind-boggling and then you, you go into college maybe and then you experience you know the whole fraternity scene and that's like the closest thing to like a rites of passage but what are we modeling there the use of roofies the use of all these things right i mean it's it's heavy it's really heavy. You know, I, I saw that in, at Duke University when I did my, my pre-med and stuff, you know. So I got to see that. Fortunately, I didn't go into that world, but I was very close to it and constantly around it. And yeah, it's it's a very sick thing. And I think you see corporate America, it's totally a reflection, I think, of what what is kind of bred in that college scene, you know, starting back into high school. So again, inviting us, especially as men, and I'm speaking from this, you know, to men, I feel like women naturally have a, a greater propensity to come together as women and to do women's work and to have circle and counsel. But I feel men at large, especially in our society, do not have a, many outlets for that. And so I feel like we see that. I think there's a there's an upsurgence. I'm seeing more men's groups and more counsel happening, which is great, but it's like a drop in the bucket right now. I feel like it's a lot more needed. And that's another piece that I really feel called to do. I'm kind of right now in this process of of looking at how to create more of that with several other uh, friends, collaborators, and how we can create more men's counsel. Because um, I feel it's so important. Because there's very few role models out there. And I feel like all of us as men are looking for what does the balanced male in the 21st century look like? It's I don't you know it's not just a total effeminate man. I think there is a really powerful, balanced, masculine man. And what does that look like? That brings up a few things. Uh, first off, one question I wanted to ask to rewind a little bit. Do you not drink alcohol at all or just – Yeah, none. No, that's part of the path of Sundance. No, no zero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. That's cool to know. Yeah. Second one was that you mentioned that as many fathers have checked out, and then I was thinking about you going through initiation, and there seems to be a theme here. Is there, do you, first of all, I'm imagining you believe there's a correlation of if there's someone is lacking – that initiation they might be more prone to drifting as a man later in life and if if that's the case i'm just wondering do you have any people are listening and they might be craving an initiation yeah and i um i've had many i think that what this tr retreat that we just did it was an initiation sure it's like an emo almost an emotional obstacle course that we all go through together yeah <laughs> you know with a lot and it's a lot of fun <laughs> and um but I like hunting was one for me. Um, dreaming, dreaming almost every night's a bit of an initiation for me. But that when you you also mentioned like getting close to the veil, there are certain activities that I think that you know, that what you're doing that I imagine I'd, you're in the veil there for those four days. Yeah. Um, what about the general listener or something? Just as a suggestion for someone going through high school or college and be like, they might be just prone to go to the military because they're see they're looking for that initiation right. but haven't received it yet. Right. Yeah, it's a great question. I feel, you know, my m one of my careers before, uh, you know, I don't. It's not really before, but there was a period in my life where, in my twenties, that I I worked in in behavioral health 
Uh, my father is a substance abuse counselor and has been a director in, in, in behavioral health and working with people with not only mental health issues, but also with substance abuse problems, which are often correlated. Um, and one of the things that I did back in those days, I worked with inner city youth and I did specifically work after school programs, worked with boys and girls club, things like that. And kind of one of the things I was very active about was trying to find ways to be able to give some kind of initiation to young people. Because I feel like we all need it. It's like very important as we come into our women, womanhood, you know, as young women are transitioning. Um, often they get a little bit more of that just because of when you get you have your first moon and you start to connect with that often hopefully some relatives a mom or an auntie or someone a grandmother will kind of give you that orientation usually that happens but with men it's very little and often it's an awkward conversation maybe with dad the first time you you know have your first heart on your first ejaculation and those kind of things and it's like you know maybe that's some level of of that but often I still don't know why it was so awkward the first time my dad <laughs> talked to me about sex. I it was I remember being so viscerally offended almost. <laughs> my dad, I think my dad was like, "So have you been getting blowjobs yet?" And I was just like, <laughs> and I like I just shut down. Yeah. And I don't know what that was even about. Yeah. I have a feeling it's like tied to something with circumcision, like really early back. Yeah. Well, totally. I mean, there's probably a lot underneath that. So I'm, that was what was coming up for me yeah. <laughs> as you were saying that. Yeah. No, it's a huge one. Yeah, um, you know, I was circumcised late in life um, at about wow. age 10, which was really difficult um, to say the least. That was probably one of my first major pain experiences in my life, <laughs> aside from some near-death experiences already at that age. And, and um, yeah, that was really hard because I had, you know, what the doctors were saying, oh, I couldn't pull back my foreskin all the way. And um, so we're going to get really personal right now. <laughs> so, so, you know, I used to own a bus, and then on the back of it, it said, what's most personal is most universal. Yeah. And this is very interesting to me, because I, I uh, want to make the topic of circumcision and what that means, yeah. just more clarity around it. Totally. So I'm happy to talk to you about this, and it sounds pretty unique experience at 10 years old. Yeah, at 10 years old. So it was uh, it was really challenging. So my mother was like, no way, you know, at birth, she wasn't going to have it, and so I was like natural, and, and I was fine. Happy kid. No worries with that. And then um, as I was approaching 10, I was having a problem pulling back my foreskin. Dad took me into the doctor, allopathic doctor, you know, general med person. That was when we were already living in the States. And they were like, well, he's kind of like, he's probably going to have challenges, so you, we should just cut it. He's just, that was just like, you know, his diagnosis. And of course, my dad not wanting me to have issues growing up and being like really just concerned and not being educated about it, just said, okay, let's just go with the doctor says. And so me, I didn't know what was, you know, I didn't really have too much say in this. And so I was like, well, okay, you know, so we went through that process and um, that was one of the most horrific things I could ever imagine. I mean, now having gone through it at an age where I could remember it, whereas a lot of us happen, you know, before we have formed our, our main memories. Um, man, for those of you out there, moms, I, I don't recommend it. It's really, really, really horrific and painful. Most excruciating pain I've ever endured. Much worse than piercing at Sundance, for the record. Um and because it was like, you know, the stitches and everything. And then, you know, weeks of having to take a bath and being in total pain every time you get into water. Really, really intense. And and still, you know, scarring afterwards. So it's a really, really, um, really challenging thing that I definitely feel, I mean, for multiple reasons. Not only the trauma that it incurs, the scar tissue that it incurs, um, also the just kind of the, how would I say, the social anxiety because having to go to school and you can like barely walk and you're kind of like <laughs> trying to walk with that. And then, of course, kids immediately pick up on it. They're like, what's up with you? And, you know, and so like bullying and other things like that all c tie into that. 
So it's a really, really that all happened to you throughout that experience. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, wow. no, it was a super rough one. And so, so I mean, wow. one that that is form forms who I am today. So I give thanks to all of those things, you know. And I definitely say to those out there, yeah, it's it's one of those things. So when you when you say that, I'm sure there's a lot underneath that because I know just for myself, unpacking that uh, of the trauma that happened there, you know, it's 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 constant. It's still healing. Yeah, c- yeah, because you're exactly right. I don't think I have as a um, an, an imaginative memory of it as you do, but I think there is something. There's a memory there that I'm, as I unravel. We were talking about unraveling before the podcast. That that seems to be the theme of this show for me is like continuously unraveling things and yeah. getting to the root of the matter. And I love that that comes out in, uh, for music for you. <laughs> and anybody else have anything to popcorn in here? No pressure. Like, what's up? How does Sedona uh, affect my musical inspiration? Yeah. Beautiful landscapes on my travels. Yeah, it's um, it informs all of it. Uh, it's definitely at the core. I think for me, I'm I'm very attuned and and connected to space, and the energetics of spaces. That's kind of that's one of the things that I've had ever since I was little. Um, God, I mean, <laughs> just connecting it, bridging it back to that story about the circumcisions. You know, it's like the hardest part of that experience for me was the disconnect that I felt when I woke up from the anesthesia. It was waking up in the hospital in a hallway on a stretcher and, and waking up from the anesthesia. You know, the last thing I remember, I'm counting down from 100 and I got to like 94 and then I don't remember. I go out and then I wake up and I'm in this hallway with these fluorescent lights and I still can see it. I still can feel the energy of the space. And it was like a horrific smell, like this sterile, weird smell. And this nurse comes up to me, and all I can feel is like someone just stabbed me in my groin. And and it's like the most horrific pain. You know, you can imagine just happening. And I'm just like, and I don't, no one's there. And I feel just like this this, this sterile, strange, alien world and, and just pain. And so it was like that was like imprinted, the energy of that space-time, if that makes sense, and connected to that. And so I've had to do work to, to heal and unpack that and unravel that. So when we talk about like land and spaces and homes and where we move through the world, it's really important. I think a lot of times people don't understand how important that is, like creating healing environments, environments that are connected. I mean, gosh, here we are sitting on this roof of a house with grass. Like it's pretty phenomenal, right? (laughs) You know, whoever the people, the architects of this place that we find ourselves in, you know, they had some, some forethought and some real, real consideration, you know, sensitivity to say, Hey, let's not just put, you know, some asphalt on top of a house, you know, or whatever, like, you know, and some of those, those, what are those tar like tile things, right? Let's, let's make this an actual green roof. I think that's brilliant. And I think it speaks to, we have a choice, you know, with those spaces that we move through the world with. Um, I feel that spaces that are beautiful, that have, that have that care and sensitivity in them, inspire and definitely inspire me, inspire me to make music, inspire me to create beauty. Um, inspire others too. So that's that's something where I really I take that to heart. Um, you know, yeah, living in the Red Rocks here, calling this home for 11 years has been such a blessing and a privilege and an honor. I never, there's never a time where I come back from the the road and get here and just be like, eh, you know, it's like never. I'm always like, oh, Creator, thank you. Like, what a blessing I get to call this, you know, home. 
you know for the short time and you know this is this is a sacred sacred place like it's it's really um you know this land wasn't really supposed to be inhabited we're kind of there's a lot of there's a bit of controversy that isn't talked about you know about sedona and it being a city and being you know a town or whatever but being settled that wasn't supposed to really happen that way it was this has been a sacred ground that has only been visited by tribes they never really settled here and that's something that people don't really know very much about um the people that we have evidence of that lived here in certain areas a little bit on the edges of sedona um like like in the palatki and the the ruins um those were the sinagua and are said to be you know relatives of the hopi and the anasazi descendants of the anasazi people cliff dwellers but this was largely visited and you, people would do their ceremonies here and they would leave and so it's it's an interesting thing to be in this place you know the energetics of this place are super powerful and a lot of people can't stay here very long they'll come here thinking that they're going to move here i've seen this so many times it's kind of a classic sedona story they'll buy a house they're like oh i say we're moving here two months later they're gone and you're like what happened and other people they'll literally get spit out by sedona like the energy will be too intense and they'll literally get thrown through the grinder and that's just energetically it brings up and magnifies things other people will come for a weekend visit and then they never leave <laughs> 11 years later here i am you know and so it, it's kind of like that here um and i think there's other places like that around the world but i think it's very important that we create beauty in whatever place we're in and steward that place you know and treat it as our own home so nowadays with all the traveling and all the being on the road everywhere we go it's like how do we how do we steward this place how do we leave it more beautiful than we find it um i mean even hotel rooms my my wife and i it's a thing like we we make sure we leave it like nice when we leave you know not just like trash a place and then peace out and see you later it's like how do we like make it nice so that it's like you know it's like respect and how do we thank that place like how often do you thank that hotel room when you're leaving like thank you spirits thank you for making this a safe abode for me to be able to rest my body my mind my heart my soul so yeah i hope i kind of answer your question <laughs> yeah i see we uh, once again like we resonate so much i definitely can appreciate being in a place that's like a place in nature that's peaking yeah. and visiting there for an experience and thanking that just being so thankful for that and sedona is definitely that for me yeah and i can also feel like it feels like a pretty volatile space to be long term <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome too yeah yeah and the light right now is amazing um, I, I so love this spot that we're at yeah this is a particularly magical spot here too. i mean yeah <laughs> particularly as you know um so yeah it's it's a uh, it's incredible as we get to move through spaces you know all of the all of the music on my last album it's a live album um was performed live in different settings and so you know for me i really for me it's there's something about that versus like recording in a studio there's something about capturing the energetics of a place, you know, in that recording and the energy that happened in that moment that is alive, that is like what we're doing right now. I, I feel like it brings a certain level of, of bringing everything into focus. Like we're, we're taking a risk. We don't know what's going to happen. Something ridiculous could happen right now. You could say something really... Try me. Try me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the beauty of it, right? Is when we take those risks, when we when we kind of put ourselves in those situations, then something really incredible happens when we tune into those portals that open. Um, when I got here, you know, some some of us were laughing about this the set that I played at Beloved Festival. There's this really incredible set that happened that it was actually like only the second time I'd played on this new rig that I just created. And I was really nervous because things had gone wrong and like anything could happen. 
And I was just like, I have to do it. I have to just take the risk and do it. And, you know, I was supposed to play on the main stage, you know, uh, right before Nako. And it was this whole thing, right? And they ended up sticking me on the yoga stage. And it's like on the other side of a mountain, literally. You have to like hike to get to this other stage, you know, in the middle of the day. And I'm like, oh, man, is anyone even going to come to this thing? I was like, I don't know. This is kind of whack that they gave me this set, you know? And and I'm fresh out of Sundance, too. And so I'm like, nope, spirit's guiding this. Just surrender. We show up. And sure enough, like 600 people somehow found their way over to this thing. And like there was not enough room. People were spilling over like into the forest. And the, the music that came through in that set and what happened in that portal that opened was unparalleled. One of one of the most incredible, most ecstatic sets I've ever performed in my life. It was very, very powerful. I mean, there's, yeah, it was viscerally felt palpable, like people like freaking out. And I think um, that that just showed me. It was like, don't ever question it. <laughs> just trust show up get out of the way <laughs> yeah, it's like back to that the surrender miracle it seems inevitable i saw raj were you you got something because we're probably getting pretty close i see 55 minutes so i feel the container is getting tighter about 11 years yeah Okay, and I'll I'll add to re-question it. Raj is basically asking like a pl an awesome place to spend three months, especially for tribe design to consider to visit. Mm -hmm. And I that's a part of tribe design. So are you, you know, are you bringing me? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> let's talk about that. This could be happening. Three months, three months. And no. sometimes the so you know the aim is, historically is like to be at the best place in the world at the best time to be there to play that game. Yeah. So Sedona in September on the full harvest moon yeah, was very pretty, not pretty, by accident. It's pretty epic. <laughs> Well done. Um, yeah, there's there's several spots, but the one probably right now that keeps coming to me is a place that we're that I really love is close to my heart. It you could say it's the Sedona of South America, um, and it's in a little town called Alto Paraíso, in the center of Brazil, about three hours from Brasilia, right smack in the middle of the country, in the heart, and um, it's where the headwaters of the Toncanchins River begin and it's one of the largest aquifers in the world and that feeds eventually the Amazon River if it meets up with the Amazon with the Solimoyans and becomes the Amazon so it's very powerful place super energized very activated like Sedona um, in an interestingly it has its own kind of biome it's a unique ecosystem it's it's what we um, call Cejado um, so it's kind of like a desert tropical desert so it has like a lot of water so there's waterfalls there's hundreds of waterfalls there and it has mesas very much like Sedona has, but they're green instead of red. So it's a really it's a really special spot. Um, and there's a lot of very esoteric people there. One of the first Osho communities in Brazil was right there, founded there like 20, 30 years ago. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting groups there. And there's major spiritual gatherings that happen there. One of the largest encounters of ayahuasqueros happens there. Um, in Curanderos, there's the Eagle Condor gathering that happens there. It will be happening 2021 January and I think we're actually planning on doing a retreat there one of our music as medicine retreats there in 2020 next year probably in December sometime so right after the eclipse there's going to be I don't know if you guys know about the big eclipse gathering happening in Patagonia in Argentina 
um, Simbai and like what we had in Oregon, Oregon Eclipse Gathering. So we'll probably be playing that festival, I'm sure. and be really heavily involved with it. We're actually trying to formulate uh, David Satori from Beats Antique, uh, Dirt Wire. He and I have been kind of planning this. This is kind of a little bit of a secret, but I guess I'm telling the world right now. So mark your calendars. We're, we're, we're wanting to like do a little tour down and like take a group and maybe cruise for parts of it, like maybe by land and go all the way down there and make a tour out of it but like with a caravan so that's planting that little seed and maybe maybe the tribe wants to come with us and be be involved with that (laughs) yeah there's definitely some synchronous energy here because i know you're i think you're talking about later in the year for 2020 yeah it seems like the next tribe design is going to be in uh patagonia on january 3rd 2020 so very early in the year wow so i would like to plant that seed cool if you want to get Perongi in Patagonia, let's, let's vote, vote here. <laughs> Wait, that's that's this coming January? <laughs> yeah, January 3rd. That's like my only, only window home <laughs> for like the whole year. Well, <laughs> some people might say it feels like coming home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, I'm right there at the hour mark. I'm super stoked. Yeah, me too. I, I follow you on Spotify. Is there somewhere like if someone's like, I want to learn more about what this guy's up to? Yeah, yeah. The best, the best way is our email newsletter, which um, it's kind of like our email list, which we 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 just do one month, but we kind of let everyone know like what's happening, the retreats, the offerings, new music, and that people can get that all that information as well as the new music we put out on my website, porangi.com. P-O-R-A-N-G-U-I.com. Um, Spotify is a great place. Please do follow us there. Uh, what really sp- supports us is if people are into our music and want to support the music is really um, Bandcamp and checking out our Bandcamp and purchasing our albums through Bandcamp. That's like that's one of the few platforms that actually honors the artists. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the streaming platforms, as much as they're, you know, they're very convenient, but, you know, they we see 0.002 cents per stream. So it's... it's um, it's really difficult to make a living through the streaming platforms. They're more about just getting the word out there, and they're convenient. And so, of course, by all means, that's a good thing. And, yeah, to support us, I'd say also come to a show, come to a retreat. Those are the biggest ways I think that people can really connect with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I know about music, and it sounds like you and G, who was at the experience that you were describing. Yeah, beloved, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's like it happens once. That's it. The portal And the opens. recordings are epic. And it's so amazing to be alive. Yeah, especially with what I do. I mean, it's, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, everything I'm doing is in the moment improvised and really just connected to that energy of that space and those people and the spirits of that land. So, yeah, I think that's really where the mana is. And I encourage people to come experience it. And there's a, this fall, people would like to check it out on our website. It has uh, our lineup and the newsletter. We're going to be announcing some new dates real soon. But we're going to be all over the place where we're going to be in um Next up, I'm going literally uh, Wednesday heading to SoCal. We're going to be doing some shows there. I don't know when the podcast comes out, but depending on the timing of that, we'll be in SoCal, then <laughs> then the Pacific Northwest, Austin, and then um, Mexico, Onda Linda. We're playing that festival down there. And NorCal again, Nevada City, kind of up in that area. And then Australia for our first big month-long tour through Australia. So if anyone in Australia listening in. Wow. Okay. I, now a new question arises. If you got, I w- I'd like to go like for four more minutes if that works for Boom, you. Uh, <laughs> but maybe a little actually popcorn we can do for four minutes if that works. Would you like to popcorn some questions back and forth? I love popcorn. All right. So my question to you is: with all that epic travels, is there a way? What's the most? How do you stay grounded? Is there a ritual or something mm. that you do to stay in your space with all the moving space around you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, one of the things that 
you know, and, and there's periods where I'm, I'm less good about this, but it's something that I've been really committed to and I've been mostly good about it is having my, my ritual of, of taking uh, at least a seven minute to 14 minute um, period for my body just to like ground, to sit, to meditate, to stretch, to do some exercise. Um, and that's been really important to the practice is just being able to move energy, stagnant energy that builds up as you're in cars and planes and automobiles and whatnot is being able to really just like open, connect to my breath and to move that energy. So exercise is huge in that process. And of course, there's periods where it literally like, it's like you get off the plane, you have to go straight to a sound check, you play, you don't get home till 2.30, you know, to four in the morning, and then you got to get up and travel again. So then it's like, I pass out and then you just wake up and go. So there's times where it's not feasible, but that, when that's not feasible, I definitely pay for it. So that's why the seven minute to 14 minute, there's like a little app I have. It's like a seven minute workout app. And it's like, I, I can never have an excuse. I can't afford seven minutes. <laughs> Somehow I got to fit them in there. You know, sometimes that's us in the airport at the gate. Like I'm doing push ups, you know, by the gate. And everyone's like, who is this, who's this guy? I can relate to that. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. Especially when I have my shirt off. They're like, is that even legal? Oh yeah. I don't want to scare, <laughs> I don't want to scare people with the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's one that's been really big. Um, and then I would say, you know, the other is just also with meals is because we all got to eat. And so when you're, when I'm sitting to eat or when we're moving and eating is really taking time to just center myself and really give thanks. Um, I think it's one of those things that's so easy to not do. And so really giving thanks for, th- for the food that I receive. And um, the other one, this might sound a little funny, but it's making my bed. Yeah, I like that one. I, you've, I've been more inspired to make my bed than usual tonight. Yeah, it's like if you can start your day by making your bed, <laughs> there's something about that. It's like it's it's gonna. It's like you've accomplished something already for the day. <laughs> I think I heard a Marine once speaking about that in like a keynote talk, and they're saying like, make your bed first thing, and it's like when you come back, no matter how shitty your day was, your bed's made, and you return to that it's like a, that harmony. It sets the stage in the beginning for something, yeah. something intentional. Yeah, and, and then like I think Aubrey said take cold showers <laughs> so i've been doing that the wim hof little thing you know so i'll do i'll end on cold well you mentioned that's what i was thinking <laughs> when you were talking about all the places you've been i love doing that breath work and like downloading the yeah. oxygen in that place and downloading the cold water into my body when i'm there mm. and do you want to popcorn one question back to me yes. and then we'll call this a wrap yeah mm. Mm. what inspires you the most to get up in the morning usually cold water (laughs) (laughs) actually like usually having a cold water source to get by like like oh i can get so i want i can go from so tired like so rested to so awake Mm. so i think it's something that like and it's not always cold water available and um if i was gonna go deeper than that just like the, the symbolic experience for waking up um Yeah, like some sort of affirmation for me following my heart. Like I want to wake up and listen to what my heart says because <laughs> when I do that, when I follow that strong subtlety, m- miracles seem to sprout out, out all over the place. And it seems to be uh, like a fulfilling path to take. So I think I'm a, a bit addicted to that. Mm. Beautiful. Addicted to that following that elevated heartbeat. And it's like kind of like a hummingbird. <laughs> Can I catch it? Oh. Thank yeah, you. man. Thank yeah, you. Man. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Thank you all for being here. Yeah. Throw hands the way out. Bye bye.
This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Everyone is telling the truth about themselves. Chapter 12, Speaking in Prayer. If there is one thing we own, I might say it is our voice. Why speak if we don't want to be heard? Every word we say, even if it is silent and to ourselves, is heard by the Creator. And how do we know that the Creator doesn't hear it as a prayer? The more I travel around, the more people I meet, the more I keep realizing the same thing. Everyone is telling the truth about themselves. The challenge I find is that I'm not sure, A, if they believe it, and B, if the truth they're telling is the one they want to tell, that is, the truth they want to be true for their lives. Even if they're talking about someone or something else, they're still revealing some sort of truth about themselves. And in the case of lying, sometimes they're the most revealing. Like most realizations that seem to strike out of the blue, this one, in hindsight, must have been something I'd already been thinking for some time. It was towards the end of a retreat, and I was listening to a woman, let's call her Anne, talk about her life back home, the things she was and wasn't going to do differently from now on. She had a large and what I imagined to be a cumbersome suitcase on the ground beside her. I hadn't seen that suitcase since the first day when she arrived at the airport, wheeling it along behind her. Of course, everyone brought some baggage with them, but this woman, judging by the size of the suitcase, had packed for two weeks instead of four days. The first thing we did was take it to the retreat house and stow it, out of sight and mind. After that, we were free as a group to go out, free to hike, explore, polar plunge, and for a brief time, let ourselves be known. Anne had done all that, had consistently gone outside her comfort zone. It was the last day now, the last hour, in fact, and the suitcase, everything she had brought with her, was back at her side, ready to go home. I'm so grateful for this experience, she said, and I know I've learned a lot. I think you are all incredible people, and I'm happy I got to know you, and I'd love to stay in touch. Slowly, the real world crept back into her speech. I really hope I can incorporate some of what I've learned when I get back home. I don't want to lose this feeling I have right now. I feel light, both in the sense of not heavy and in the sense of having my dark spots lit up. I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. It's going to be hard because when I'm home, it's no mistake that that quote drifts off because that's when I stopped hearing her actual words. Though I can guess which ones she used, my job, bills, I can't, I have to, I have a family, why, because, and but, a lot of buts. It was almost like I could see the spark go out of her eye as a cloud of the real world passed before her eye. A minute ago, her vision was open and unobstructed. Now it narrowed to focus on the obstacles. I could hear her subconscious speak through every word she said as though she was giving herself away, revealing her secret motives. It was more a confessional than an actual confession, only she didn't know it. She didn't necessarily believe what she was saying, but she wasn't awake enough at that moment to question it. Her subconscious, her inner saboteur, what Napoleon Hill might call the devil, was subtle, similar to her actual voice, 
had slipped into her speech undetected. In short, that feeling she said she wanted to keep, she was unwittingly preparing to lose. By convincing us of why it might happen, she was convincing herself of why it was going to happen. She subconsciously knew that if we bought her story, she could buy it too. She could privately confirm her own bias, the one she kept like a secret pact to herself. Things don't work out. I'm not meant to be happy. I'm damned. I'm not born lucky. This is the way it has to be. By repeating her rationalizations aloud in the present tense, she was projecting them outward, casting them onto the canvas of her reality. There was a part of me that could empathize, that wanted to empathize, that wanted to say, yes, it is hard. It's very hard. There was another part of me, however, that wanted to say, no, it's really not. You might call the first part of me my human side and the second part some other side, but even that division, which is how I thought of it in the past, is a story. It's not a matter of what I should do anymore than it's a matter of what she should do. It's a matter of how do I serve her best. And to me, it's not by enabling her to argue for her limitations, aiding and abetting her sense of powerlessness. It's not by nodding my head and giving her the false impression that I agree that she's a victim and that the challenges she's named are actual reasons why she can't do what she wants to do, why she can't live in accordance to her higher self. I didn't nod. I listened. By listening to her, I allowed her to listen to herself. It all made sense in her own head, but put another person there and suddenly she heard it from a different angle. The truth she was professing became merely a version of the truth, which is to say, a story. That story was the only thing standing between her and the life she wanted. Early exercises with their focus on pulling back the layers and coming clean were about speaking in tongue, letting whatever comes up come out. In religious terms, it means speaking under the spell of inspiration where the spirit overcomes a person, their eyes roll back, and they let themselves become a vessel for whatever energies come up. Oftentimes, what comes up is unintelligible through language, not words, but sounds and gestures. We use those exercises as a way of tapping our inner spring and getting to the source, which involves clearing the mud away in the form of internalized stories. Get those out, out of the way, so that you can get to the real stuff underneath. Speaking in prayer is less an exercise and more a practice. After one has tapped the source, felt and heard the difference, one realizes how much language can influence one's reality. These are abstract concepts that are challenging to explain directly instead of metaphorically. But I trust that if you've done the earlier exercises, you have an idea of what I'm talking about. That is, you're familiar with feelings that seem beyond words. I've heard that prayer is when you're speaking to God and meditation is when you're listening to God. In prayer, we put our thoughts, hearts, desires, and fears out into the universe so that the higher power can listen and bear witness. In meditation, we listen as though we've shouted into a canyon and wait for the echo to come back. My question is, in the eyes and the ears of God, aren't we always praying? If the Creator hears all, does it really matter whether we shout or whisper, whether we interlock our hands, whether we say something aloud or merely think it to ourselves? 
if God can detect even the tiniest of things, maybe the thought that our prayers are not answered actually reveals a darker wish. The word becomes flesh. Repeat that like a mantra. Say it again until it makes sense. Not necessarily logical sense, but heart sense, soul sense, until it catalyzes the creative being inside you to say, aha, or aho. Hear yourself speak. Watch yourself act. Observe yourself think. The word becomes flesh means that the things we say have the power to shape our reality. And not only the things we say aloud, but also the things we think, the things we say silently to ourselves. How would you speak if you knew that everything you said would be heard as a prayer? How would you think if you knew that your thoughts expressed your wishes? This idea springs from the questions and realizations above. Speak in a way that you want to be taken at your word. Speak in the manner in which you want to be heard. Speak as you would if you were standing in a courtroom under oath of the highest authority. Here's what that means specifically. Anything you didn't want in your life, speak about it in the past tense. Even if it was five minutes ago, five seconds ago, even if you are still feeling the undesirable feeling, the moment you open your mouth to speak, put it in the past. Technically, it is in the past because soon as you say it, it's over. The moment has passed. Conversely, the things you do want in your life, speak about them in the present. To go back to Anne, after she caught herself in a story, she repeated what she had said, but put it all in the past tense. She said, In the past, it was hard for me to express myself to my family because I allowed myself to worry that they wouldn't understand what I meant. I allowed myself to worry that they would think I was crazy or weird. I even allowed myself to imagine that their judgment of me came from their own fear that I was leaving them behind, so ultimately I felt sorry for them and held my tongue. Do you hear the difference between that and something like, I can't express myself because they won't understand, or I can't go polar plunging in the morning or hiking in the afternoon because I have to work? Putting it in the present tense shirks responsibility for decisions you yourself are making. Maybe in the past you couldn't go hiking because you had to work, which is to say because you chose to work, because you valued the security you got in health insurance and steady paychecks more than you valued the actual health and abundance you would have gotten from hiking. That's a totally different story with totally different implications. One is the language of power, the other, the language of poverty. One is the language of responsibility, which leads to acceptance, which leads to action. The other is the language of blame, which can lead to despair and inaction. For Anne, speaking about the challenges she faced in the past immediately raises the question of what she can do about it in the present. Before this retreat, I had a hard time expressing myself to my family because I imagined they didn't understand me. Now I see what it really was. In the past, I couldn't handle myself the way they understood me, the way they reacted to me, and this led to some anger on my part. Now, I am more aware of this tendency, and instead of shutting down, I can be more patient with myself and with them in my self-expression. If I observe feelings of anger come up in me, I can let them know about it, rather than do what I did in the past, which was to channel it in the form of scarcasm. In the past, I allowed my employment to limit my options. 
I allowed my job to dictate what I could and couldn't do. And now, now I know that's not necessarily the case. Now, rather than discredit the things I want, I take them seriously. I figure out ways to do those things with the job I have, if it's possible or if it's not, to either be okay with it or to make a change because there are infinite ways to get paid to pursue my passion. I can be creative with how I make my gifts valuable and available to other people. When I hear people speak in this way, I hear individuals who stand apart from their surroundings, individuals with integrity, meaning they are whole, unimpaired, of sound mind and body. When I speak this way myself, I establish that inch of breathing room, that inch of choice and eternity between me and my circumstances. Speaking in prayer, in addition to consciously distinguishing between past and present, is paying attention to words you use and letting go of the ones that no longer serve you.